0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast, stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence, to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. This is another episode. And we have um, kind of a neat topic today, and it's it's a topic that haunts a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> clergy and nonprofit leaders, and that's just a missing element. Kind of keeping those numbers lined up so we can have that accountability for reporting to the grant, reporting to the government, you know, letting our donors know how we're we're doing and basically letting the board know how they can be in charge of approving the budget and the numbers. So we have Tasha Anderson today and I believe you're in St. Louis, Missouri. So Tasha, tell people a little bit about you and why do you have the title that you have?
1: That's, a, that's actually a really great question. I don't know if anyone, anyone's ever asked me that question, but it certainly is, uh, there's a story behind it. I am a CPA. I've been working in the nonprofit space for about, uh, give or take 15 years. And I started as an auditor for nonprofits. So I did that for about seven years. So I audited financial statements and compliance. So I've seen that side of accounting. And then... Um, after my, my stint in public accounting, I went on to be a CFO of a nonprofit. It was about six and a half million dollars at the time. We had about 80 some odd employees, and we were audited by every local, state, and federal government contract I feel like known to man. And I really realized, in addition to the accounting work, I had all other duties as assigned, like many of us do in this particular space. So I was also overseeing HR, risk management, IT, and facilities over four different campuses. So It was quite a big job and I really learned not just how to do things right and what they're supposed to look like to stay in good standing with auditors because I came in with that experience, but I also figured out a way to do it really, really efficiently um, out of survival, maybe mostly, um, because of all of the other things that I had to get done on any given day. So I did that for about four years. So after that, I decided to find some way for all of the information that I've learned over, that period of time both in public accounting and then also working for a specific nonprofit. what if there was a way i could take what i learned and apply that to smaller organizations small to mid-sized organizations i had no plans to grow um, into a larger accounting practice but that is precisely what happened i expected to take on a couple clients that i would really like working with and i'd have a pretty powerful impact all while making it um all while making it high value for the clients and also cost sustainable. So um, I started with just a handful of clients, the word got out, Um, more nonprofits were reaching out to me, asking if I could help them. But interestingly enough, I had other accountants that were reaching out to me wanting to also work with nonprofits, so people looking to leave banking, finance, and other corporate jobs in pursuit of something a little bit more meaningful. So we take a lot of technology, we take a lot of the accounting technical experience and kind of like merge them all together in a means to find this perfect hybrid. Um, I often joke that we're an IT company that does accounting services for nonprofits because so much of this work now is very digital and technology driven. So the charity CFO comes with the vision that we don't just want to be an accounting bookkeeping services uh, firm that works with all other businesses, and we know enough about accounting to specific to nonprofits to weather you through your basic needs, but also somebody that can take all of these other nuance issues that nonprofits deal with at a, at a higher level that's missing for so many of these organizations, and how can we fill in that gap? Because I feel like you can find a bookkeeper, but you can't find someone that can understand your contracts and understand how to renegotiate those, how to do unit cost reporting, or just these higher level things, how to get you through an audit, but also have the bandwidth to recreate or reimagine processes that could really be efficient, not just on the accounting side, but all of the other people that are involved in that. So your program staff, your fundraising staff, how can we all collaborate and really look at a fresh set of eyes? And I think one of the benefits, we have um, over 50 clients all over the country now and we're able to take the best practices that we've kind of developed or we've seen and kind of scrub them up a little bit and figured out, could this apply or help many of our other clients? So we really try to take not just best practices from keeping your eyes dotted and your T's crossed, but creative ways to get work done. Um, again, in an efficient and accurate way. So that's kind of where the charity CFO is. We want to be something more than just bookkeepers. That's Sorry. where it came from.
0: That's really good. Um, just popped up a lot of issues in my mind yeah. besides having this you're you're on the program sponsored by the 501c3 that I founded Center Vision Leadership Foundation and our job is to educate nonprofit leaders and we have quite a few people in our network that look at these come by our website etc mm-hmm. uh, and they will find you and they'll have questions so let me let me raise some of the questions that in my 32 years, I find mm-hmm. that there's some of those gaps that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, let's talk about roles and responsibilities. So you mentioned bookkeeper, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned accountant. Now I wanna add into that mix, a treasurer. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about audit and that stuff later. So the, the board has uh, oversight responsibility of governance, uh, sure. approving with they not running the day to day, but approving contracts like with an accountant or whatever. Um, they also have oversight of the budget. They approve the budget and the expenditures, so they need to watch the money. So, talk about the roles of uh, of an accountant, of a bookkeeper, and of a treasurer, and then how how does a virtual CFO interface with the treasurer, which we you know we we need to have on on our board.
1: Yeah. So, I'll kind of keep it pretty general and simplistic in a way. Of course, there's always going to be one-off scenarios. Um, you know, it's interesting with accounting now is becoming very, I would say, database driven. So a bookkeeper, differentiating a bookkeeper from a really good bookkeeper is really going to fall down to attention to detail and full understanding and knowledge of how to use the database to its fullest potential. Um, so that person is generally getting the transactions into the system and hopefully a consistent and accurate way. An accountant is going to be someone that can look at something and say, that doesn't look right let me understand why, and let me understand how to fix it. Um, That could be, an accountant certainly can do bookkeeping, but those skills aren't necessarily transferable between um, somebody that just might know how to really use the system and get the information into the system. So hopefully your accountant, whether you call it a senior accountant or a controller, CFO in some cases, depending on the complexity of the organization, that person should really be able to predict what your auditors might be looking for outside stakeholders, your board included would be looking for, and also know, this doesn't look right. Let me follow up on it. Let me fix it. Um, And I think that that's where we come across a lot of our clients that have bookkeepers, but things aren't right, and they don't necessarily know they're not right, and they surely don't know how to fix it. So that's, that's generally where we come into play. So kind of that next level, when we start working with organizations, these are people, these are organizations that are looking at, maybe we've had an in-house bookkeeper, or maybe we've kind of done it ourselves. The executive director's been doing some of the bookkeeping, but they know that they've had additional scrutiny on their books. What do I mean by that? They have specialized reporting, they have restricted grants. They're now um, launching into audit territory. Some states require specific thresholds for which you need to have audits. And they just really wanna make sure that somebody is looking at this and making sure that they're not completely off track. I would say a good CFO and some of the things that we like to do for our clients is really understanding, you know, are these contracts that we've entered into, are those actually advantageous to us? Is this sustainable? If it's not sustainable, how do we make it sustainable, if anything? What are the projections we're looking at? What kind of cash do we have? And at what point do we need to ring the alarms to that board treasurer? Or to the CEO and say, we're going to run out of money. Um, also coming up with other risk management contingency plans, which I think is really relevant for the time we're in right now, considering other alternatives, like if we don't have a line of credit, should we look into that? You know, banks are often good about giving you money when you don't necessarily need it, but <laughs> when we need it, um, it becomes much more um, difficult. Refinancing things. I, I had a client that um, was leasing a copier and they just received $10 million in capital campaigns. And I and I mentioned to them, do you realize you're paying an interest rate equivalent to over 40% on this copier? And they just couldn't believe it because they could have just bought one outright. Um, so it was just those kind of things. It's that somebody that's asking those details. You know, and I'm obviously I'm a little biased, but I don't know if all outsourced accountants might understand that. And I think that's where I come from a really interesting background because I used to write the checks. And I used to question like, why, if we have to spend that kind of money. So the more people in your organization that are doing those sort of things and asking why, and does this make sense, the better, which I think leads to how, whether in-house or outsourced, that someone could really help a CEO, which oftentimes doesn't always come from a business or financial background. They oftentimes come from the programmatic side, whether it's ministry or education or health or something like that. But educating the treasurer too, which by the way, also doesn't always come from a nonprofit background. Maybe come from banking, investments, financing, that kind of thing. Um, Educating them on some of those operational financial decisions, not just, oh, the balance sheet looks healthy, but really are we being good stewards of our resources? Do these arrangements make sense? And can we be doing them a little bit differently? So collaborating with them, um, either through finance committee meetings, we tend to do for all of our clients, give an executive summary that gives a story behind the numbers. So not just oh, p and looks good or you know, statement of activities in the nonprofit world or the balance sheet or financial statement of financial position looks good, but does it look good now? Is it projected to look good in the future? How are we going to end the year? Is it in line with budget? Like, some of those conversations that can allow more people to work collaboratively to make sure we're on the right path.
0: So that's a lot of good information. Um, of course, there's a lot of data underneath those. Who... Who defines the chart of accounts and then we'll talk about I like to talk about the reports mm-hmm. and then uh, what is the chart of accounts that's that's the the different line items uh, in your accounting and so explain exactly. a minute what a chart of accounts is and then who who sets those up
1: Yeah, good question. A chart of accounts is essentially a quite quite literally a list of all of the accounts that you use. so that's going to be things generally when people think of chart of accounts they think of revenue line items, expense line items. It also does include your cash line items, your, anything on your assets, liabilities, or net assets or equity. Um, it includes all of the accounts that are included in your accounting system, both on the, we like said the balance sheet side of things, so assets, liabilities, um, net assets, and it also includes your revenues and expenses. Who, uh, that's a really great question because who defines that? Generally the answer is whatever account you might have started working with, at some point in time, plus or minus any small changes you've made over the years. Um, I think to better answer that question, what should you be doing with the chart of accounts? Um, What I've noticed, I get on the phone a lot of times with nonprofits and they say, you know, Tasha, my my reports don't match my budget. Uh, Because uh, from a leadership perspective, we are modifying our budget based on who we are today as a management tool to run the business. Oftentimes the accounting system is not updated to morph and pivot to what we've now become. So sometimes these chart of accounts or these accounts you're using are completely outdated and they haven't been updated to reflect your budget. So I look every year with all of my clients and I would recommend any nonprofit to be doing this. If our budget is changing because the nature of what we're doing is changing, then certainly our chart of accounts needs to change as well. Now I would caution people not to go and change things every six months or every quarter or something like that, but surely if you add new programs, if you add um, different kinds of expenses, different kinds of revenue, and you feel that you're going to have to report on that, you should certainly update those things. So so the simple answer is probably some accountant at some point in time, but a lot of people just don't realize that you can change those, and you should as your operations change.
0: So... That's very good advice. And it would vary, term accounts would vary a lot. Like in, for, for my, my nonprofit, I have, I have um, programs that people buy to study whatever aspect of nonprofit leadership and a membership community. Those are specific line items, revenue, revenue line items. Um, I'm the president of the, the symphony, and president of the board, and we have line items for concerts or concert tickets and concert expenses. So those are very specific line items for a performing group that that a non-performing group wouldn't need. So there's there's lots of variances, but basically you got your income pieces, your expenses and Mm -hmm. uh, your assets and liabilities. Um, let's talk about before we talk about the nuances of the reports, we 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 need to have these reports to make but for the board to be able to make proper financial decisions for the organization. Mm -hmm not only for today but to forecast the future um, let's talk about software you mentioned software uh, and there's there's some choices today um, i know you can set up quickbooks online and pretty much you say you're a nonprofit boom you got mm-hmm. a s- basic chart of accounts to start with so what do you what do you use what do you recommend why is it important to choose the right software
1: so we work with small to mid-sized organizations. What does that mean? How I would define it, uh, generally somewhere between startup to about six million dollars a year. Um, I've worked with all kinds of software, some very expensive and some free because you can get free licenses from them. Uh, you know, through um, a website called TechSoup.org. If you all haven't heard of it, you should check it out. Um, as long as you're qualified, uh, you can get good, cheap software. Um, most of my clients use QuickBooks Online, and I know, and I have zero financial affiliation with QuickBooks at all, um, but I'm sure they'll appreciate the plug here. Um, it tends to work really well for our clients. Um, and going back to the database administration that I had talked about before, not all users know how to use software to the fullest extent. I mean, think about any software that we use, right? Who uses software to its fullest power? few people use any software to its fullest power. Um, But if you know how to use it well and you know how to build things out within the software, you can take it quite far. Uh, In fact, I think I was was in grad school getting my MBA and there was a case study that um, this huge publicly traded retail company had used uh, QuickBooks for their international sales up until recently. I mean, they're a multi-billion dollar company, and they were operating on QuickBooks. So you can take it pretty far if you know how to use it. Um, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I like it, aside from the fact that you can build it out and you can um, get a lot of functionality. Um, from a succession plan, uh, here's some of my experience. If you do get a really custom software and you spend a lot of money on it, and it's it's the Cadillac and, and maybe you don't need that, um, it's it's difficult during transition. So if you have an account that's working with you and they help implement the software, that person leaves to try to find another accountant that understands that particular software um, is going to be challenging oftentimes. And so I like to put systems in place that are easily transferable, non-proprietary, that most bookkeepers or accountants could at least have a lot of resources to get up to speed and familiar with the functionality of it. So I think that that's really important. I've come across that many times. I've seen enough software I can navigate through most of the, the major players that are much more expensive. Um, and it's difficult for organizations to be able to continue fully utilize it because every time you lose one of those accountants, you've now just lost more functionality of the system. Um, for example, I've had a couple clients that had a pretty big expensive software. It's, an, it's a major name in town. But you have to almost be short of a computer programmer in order to import the budget it takes this very special text file and if you lose the text file or it becomes corrupt the budget importing is essentially useless unless you pay for um, about a six thousand dollar a year annual maintenance subscription for which then you could reach back out to the developer and get a new one but that's just cost prohibitive for most of the clients in our budget size um that said there's also some really good options out there that are cloud-based obviously i'm a big fan of things virtually I've had enough horror stories of people keeping their accounting system on a laptop and the laptop dies and now they have zero accounting records. So for that reason, um, I'm all for cloud-based computing. Um, It's especially interesting in light of what's going on right now in the world that virtual accessibility is even more important. Um, There's a couple other uh, programs out there that work really well. Uh, Sage Intact is another one that for those clients that have a lot of funds I would imagine you use the example of a symphony um, or especially a lot of faith-based organizations that tend to get a lot of special funds endowments gifts that you have to really track in a very high level of detail Um, something like a sage intact would be a good solution for that that's also cloud-based fairly inexpensive compared to some of the other more proprietary systems require a lot of custom building. But honestly, QuickBooks works for most of our clients. And generally they come with QuickBooks to us because that's what they've known, or they can get a really steep discount on the subscription through something like TechSoup.
0: It is, and it's very, very, very cost effective. And When I had a retail business years ago, um, I did my own internal accounting and there was a whole accounting, there was an inventory management and a billing system and bookkeeping system and it all interfaced.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's there's like accounting for chambers of commerce that they have is specialized there's a church software companies and it's now gone to the cloud so their yeah. membership system their accounting system their donation system all interfaces
1: exactly so there's yep.
0: there's specific uh, verticals for software but it all kind of works you know, in the debit and here's a credit and it it flows into your your um your reporting um, so there's, there's a lot of solutions. But but basically what I'm hearing you say is you need somebody like in your seat that knows how to work it and give you the reports that you need and then raise a red flag when there's something out of order.
1: Exactly. You brought up something I think it's worth revisiting. Um, it's probably actually my number one reason why I like QuickBooks because they put a lot into their R&D and they're probably, in my opinion, other than Sage Intact, and, and another one called Zero X-E-R-O those three really put a lot into integration with other software. We've worked with churches where their donor platform that you just kind of mentioned feeds right into QuickBooks, schools and their platforms feed right into QuickBooks. So you're taking all of this data entry that the bookkeeper was doing and human errors and things. And now you're you're importing that information directly in. And frankly, there's just not a lot of other software companies that are investing in that kind of integration. And that's, that's going back to my joke about being an IT company that does accounting services for nonprofits. <laughs> that's a lot of what we try to do. Um, payroll companies that are integrating with QuickBooks. I mean, you can almost take a lot of your information and, and just have it completely integrated and dumped right into the system then where it becomes important rather than having bookkeeper to get the information into the system somebody that's pretty skilled in the software and looking at the numbers and say does that look right and if something's broken it's probably a system issue and they need to be able to troubleshoot that and get you on the right path again so i didn't mention that earlier but that's probably one of my my top picks for choosing that software as well. And the
0: integration is all the, um, the credit cards and the uh,
1: exactly. checking
0: accounts and the savings accounts, everything's integrated, just downloads. And it's, it's correct. <laughs> 99% of the time. Now you can look at it and look at your statements, but you know, it, balancing checkbooks all my life, it never came out of my favor. If I had a mistake, it was always yeah. the bank's favor.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, always.
0: <laughs> it always. So um, let's talk about reports and then we'll, um, do the happy things about, about, um, audits. Um, so, so fundamentally the work you do before we get to reports and your interface with the treasurer, I mean, none of us are audit resistant like for IRS or for other people want to come after us. So mm-hmm. you make us audit ready. If, if the books are correct and up to date all the time, then we're prepared for any kind of a, if it's a tax audit or, you know, any kind of audit, um, or an audit for a, a grant, because exactly. we have a responsibility for reporting what we did with our money. So mm-hmm. good accounting is, is so essential.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's go to reports. Um, presenting the right reports to the board, and, and it, in my mind, it's the treasurer's job to interpret those. Why are these numbers important? So the board can make uh, you know really informed decision. They can look at the numbers, but for most people, it's like, okay, it looks good, His bottom line is fine. But there's some other mm-hmm. other things going on that, that we need to look at. And, and so we start out with creating a budget. Mm-hmm. Now now how do you help organizations to think through how they set up a budget? you do it on a spreadsheet and then transfer it to QuickBooks? How do you how does that process work for organizations?
1: Well it's interesting you brought up the chart of account conversation earlier about, you know, what is a chart of accounts? I start with that first and foremost, and I export that out of the system. Say, okay, these are the accounts that we have in our system. Some of these are maybe not applicable anymore, so we can deactivate those and keep that.
0: Can I just ask about when you say export it out, could you talk yeah. about that just a minute?
1: Yeah, you can actually go into QuickBooks, run a chart of accounts report, and you can export that out of the system so that you can see all of the different accounts. And I like to start with that list because oftentimes I'll get a budget and they have names for accounts that don't even exist in the QuickBooks. So it's kind of like, if we could somehow start with what we have in the system, and if that doesn't make sense, then we can update it in the system too, and we're all on the same page. So um, kind of my process in a kind of a summarized way, obviously starting with the accounts we have in the system, uh-huh. but I look at what if we spent, so let's, let's assume we're looking at next year um, for budget. I'm going to run a report to show me what have I spent this year to date? what are the trends what are the known changes uh what new programming or contracts and well, all these things we're looking at then i start putting those assumptions in for next year again using the accounts we already have in place and i like to do it on a monthly basis to include some seasonality there um, plus or minus any like i said known changes that we're anticipating and also thinking about what do we want to do differently what do we want to achieve and then figuring out what are those expenses that we need to pay, you know incur for that reason and then figure out the revenue, what does that look like? And of course it never matches up, so we have to go back and make cuts. So we really look at history, but also what our initiatives are, whether it's through our strategic plan or what we've committed to funders and all of those sorts of things. And I think where the budgets get really hairy for people when talking with their board. Most accounting firms provide financial statements on what they call generally accepted accounting principles. This is essentially the accounting gods Somewhere that do all things accounting for all industries come up with rules for how things have to be presented. Most accounting firms give you financial statements that look like that. Most boards, board members, treasurers come from a for-profit world that's used to looking at financial statements that look like that. Where nonprofits start to get different. We have received a pledge or money last year, and we had recognized that revenue last year. But we know the expenses go in this year. How to communicate the fact that we had to recognize revenue last year? We have to have the expenses this year. But the board is saying no. But I need a balanced budget. So, but I have the money last year, and I just have to spend it now. I want a balanced budget. So, so you're trying to fundraise for this gap of money, right? Because revenues in last year, expenses are in this year. It's kind of artificial. And it's those kind of conversations where I think things get really frustrating and confusing for people. So I think for organizations, they have to choose on how they're going to budget and how they're going to manage. And I, I hate not having a definitive answer, and it's kind of like, well, it depends. But in this kind of case, it does depend um, what your governing body, how they want you to manage. Do they? And it's essentially, it's two options they want your revenues and expenses to balance on any particular given year, or they want you to identify the resources that you have, that you accumulated in prior year for mission that you need to deliver this year. Um, You also need to um, deliver on your contracts or any, anything else um, also revenue that you're generating this year and whatever expenses you, you, you want to, you know, incur. So managing to the resources you have with the obligations you've made, or making sure that your revenues and expenses, worst case scenario, net to zero. Um, and I think that that's the natural tension between a nonprofit um, operationally, people on the inside, and those that they're trying to articulate this difference um, for for outside stakeholders, including their board. Oftentimes, I don't know if you've seen that view in your experience as well, but
0: I've seen it all.
1: Yeah. <laughs> In thirty something years, I'm sure you have.
0: Um, you know, I'm happy when a board steps up and asks things because there's more, more occasions when the board is just passive, and um, that's because the leader hadn't really presented good reports like you're talking about. Right. But, and so, um, so starting, we're in the cycle right now. It's March, and we appro- we approve a budget in May. So the committees are turning in budgets, and we're looking at it. You know, how can we do this, and then we'll tone it down to what's carpet down to what's practical and then present it to the board, um, in an annual meeting in May. And then boom, June 1st, we got the budget, but we, we've got the historical data from years. Mm -hmm. And so for years I worked in it and I was a music director in a church and I'd get my section of the budget. Here's a chart of accounts that that go into the worship and music ministry. So Mm -hmm. there was, there was a whole list of them. And children's choir, adult choir, sheet music and all this different stuff that we had to do. And so I was given there's a chance to, if it's a January budget, by the time you get to the summer, your your committee is talking about the programming, what you're going to do. So by the time you get to the fall, it goes through approval process, and then then there's the pledge season. Can we support it? Then they then can you really do the budget? January you got a budget to go, but I was responsible for starting you know the budgeting process with with the committee, and it's always the interesting phenomenon. People want to take, well, we had this much last year. We're going to add $100 to it. You know, we, we didn't spend it all, so we're going, to, we're, we're, going to, we're going to spend some, so we're going to lose it, or we spend all this. So zero-based budgeting versus what I just described. We had this. We'll just add on to it. The assumption is we want it, we want it to be more. Well, what's the justification for that? So how do, you, how do you effectively look at budgeting? Do you start with zero and say, what do we want to do? So give us some wisdom on that
1: yeah i actually kind of prefer i'll give some maybe historical information but for our organizations where we have more of a collaborative effort the program folks the fundraising folks i like them to really think through what do you spend on a monthly basis on a seasonal basis on an event basis on a whatever it might be actually go through and think what expenses are you going to incur and then we start matching up the revenue to see if we can do all those things and then we have to cut back. And, and, and I'll tell you why. I mean, aside from, you know, a lot of these just, you know, add 5% all down the list and kind of call it a day, even though we don't actually have a lot of critical thinking in there. I, like all of these individuals that have helped build the budget, know when they say um, I had an expense for these supplies, well, where did you plan for them? So when they ask me, where does that go in my budget? I should be able to ask them, where does it go in your budget you know (laughs) just to give more people the accountability um, for those numbers so that when they want to say um you know we have this opportunity for professional development is it okay if I send my staff person it always comes back generally to the accountant and generally to the CEO or executive director to make those difficult decisions even though we already have a budget so for the individuals that I work with I like you know, to ask the program director, for example, if you wanna send your staff to this budget that wasn't, or this professional development event that wasn't planned, where else in your budget do you wanna cut? And the only way that we can really give that level of ownership is if we include them in that process and make them actually think through what those specific expenses are. And maybe they use last year expenses as a guide, but I'm not talking about the total expenses. I'm not talking about total supplies, but actually go through and, and identify If it's software, what software do you continue keeping this year? Are there renewals? Um, You wanna have a new event? What is the budget you're gonna spend for there? So that we all have a level of accountability. When I was a CFO, it would always be everybody coming to my office, Tasha, am I allowed to do this? Tasha, am I allowed to do that? It's like, we did the budget. You all should kind of be able to have some accountability there. And I think the more people that can be accountable, the better.
0: So the board's approving the budget, they're approving the expenditures in advance and so the whoever the committee is or the staff person they have a line item they're responsible for and I know yeah. some of the churches I work for we could only spend a certain percentage until we got the end of the year budget we knew we actually had in the bank so we could spend 80% or 90% and then have to have approval mm-hmm. until it was really there um, so there's a real, there's a real discipline in, in managing the numbers and expenditures and accounting for it the other tendency that that's, <laughs> that I see that's bad practice is, okay, I've got an annual budget amount. So I just plug it in and divide it out by 12. Mm-hmm. So that isn't realistic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. Music program, you know, you buy music um, beginning the summer for the fall and you buy it in December for the next year. So there's, there's peaks. And when you spend money, and then have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So um, I think looking at historical data, you know, it's a, it's a cash flow thing. When are you going to need the money?
1: Right. Well and I think that when the board asks how's the budget what they're really asking is how is the budget compared to actual how are we projecting to end the year are we in line with our expectations or not and by the way do we have enough cash to actually deliver on the things that we want Um, and a lot of times if you budget that way on just a 112 each month um, you really don't understand how you're actually doing, and even if it seems, it's interesting. I had a client that had um, like three or four percent variance on payroll, which that's pretty close. Except when your payroll budget's like two million dollars, that adds up to be a lot of money, a couple percentage points. Um, so without having those really detailed kind of analysis on those numbers, and that kind of goes back to, you know, having a level of accountability and kind of a bookkeeper versus an account, or just a critical eye, whether it's your treasurer or somebody really diving into those and understanding. And then to the extent we can add personal accountability into the budget, seasonality within to the budget, and just a really kind of granular analysis of why are things not in line rather than just, oh, we think it's timing difference or something like that. um, It could have a pretty big impact, you know, after 12 months.
0: We're on the non-private exchange and we're talking to, Tanya Anderson and their company is the charitycfo.com. The T H E, charity, CFO, chief financial officer.com. And as we're determining here, she's a real expert at this. Um, she knows her stuff, and I'm, <laughs> I'm asking some pretty good questions. Of course, none of, none of my ability is going to be able to stump her. So we're looking at reports. Oh, oh you mentioned strategy a minute ago. I uh, I help organizations become fundable, building the strategy. That way, the board knows where to be engaged. But uh, also, you really can't build a budget out until you built your strategy. You know what programs you're going to do. Then you go back and say what what they're going to cost. And so, in in my world, there's a circular reference. If you've got a program, there should be a line item in your budget for that program. So if you're spending a dollar what does it support in your strategy? If it's not in your strategy, you shouldn't be spending it. Do you want to comment on the the interface between your budget and your strategy anymore?
1: You know, I think what what gets confusing for a lot of people when they're developing their strategy and they have an opportunity to expand their programming and pivot into little sub-strategies, how does that change the budget? And then also recognizing what financial impact does that have overall? And a lot of times it's like, you know, we have this, we have this mission, we have this this initiative that we want to take on. And then when you're applying for grant applications and you're asking for partial funding and you really have to think really hard about if you don't get this funding, what implications, you know, what does that what implication does that have? Because a lot of times we think, well, more money to the cause, that's great. Well, it depends. For example, I have a client that agreed to do a parenting program that's fully funded by uh, one particular contract, and we agreed to underwrite all of the over um, all the overhead, the utility, uh, the facilities, and benefits for the employees to the tune of you know thirty thousand dollars a year or so. We've decided to take on this initiative, which is a priority area for our funder. We said we could do it, but now we've just widened our fundraising gap by thirty thousand dollars. Does that make sense? And going back to your comment, you with strategy, is that really part of our strategy? And can we get other, other people on board with helping to fund that gap? Or are we willing to underwrite that with our operating reserves to do that? And why? And then what does that mean that we have to do long term? So those are the kind of bad deals, for lack of a better word, that I've found many of my clients in. And then I usually <laughs> ask, these difficult questions. And they said, why would I write a grant like this? I said, I don't know. But if it's the funder's priority area, we should really try to push back on them to get full coverage of of that cost. So those are all the different ways and what really it gets muddy when you have multiple strategies, multiple program areas and you're signing up for deals like that. And then when you put it all together, then you realize I'm doing all this work. I got all this money, and I've got all this funding and contracts. Why am I now worse off than I was before I did this work? It's the kind of those little deficits that keep adding up um, because we're afraid to ask for full funding. And and I understand why, but
0: yeah.
1: it's just something to think through. And how many strategies can we have? And at what cost? What true cost?
0: Yeah, but well, there's an overall over overarching strategy that everything must plug into. Yeah. Um, um so that brought up a lot a <laughs> couple a couple other thoughts. Uh so I teach nonprofits that they're are fundamental eight eight streams of revenue. Uh, so like you have donations and grants and sponsorships and uh in kind I don't know how to count for that. I've I've seen where people put in a number. I don't know. I don't <laughs> I don't get that. So but but there's um there's there's events, you know, there's there's different ways to raise streams of revenue. So okay. would you set up a separate income account for each one of those so you can track them?
1: I would say so. Um, I think the more granular you can get within reason, I guess this kind of echoes a little bit of the chart of account conversation we've been having. You want it to be specific enough that you can analyze, but not so detailed that whoever's doing the accounting work can't be consistent. So if you have 50 revenue accounts, the odds of someone applying Consistency and how they record it. The more accounts you get, the less likelihood that you're going to have consistency. So you want it to be clear enough to be able to analyze, but not so specific, not so detailed, not so high in volume that it's inconsistent. Because then the data just becomes useless at that point.
0: Okay. I liked question. your
1: comment about in kind, though. I'm happy to chime in a little bit more on that for anybody you, else that doesn't would, understand that.
0: Would you? Because uh, that's yeah. a tricky. It's a tricky area for everybody.
1: Let me give you an example about why it's important. Um, and then of course, the accounting gods I talked about earlier, generally accepting accounting principles, FASB, GAP, all these words that you hear, it's all kind of synonymous with um, one lawmaking, rule body. And then of course there's the IRS. And of course they're not on the same page with everything, but that's neither here nor there. So in kind, let me explain to you kind of like the significance of it in a pretty clear way. Um, I used to audit a food pantry and they have a lot of relationships with local churches. and It's very interesting how faith-based or rooted in faith organizations, although not churches, tend to operate very similar to churches. So they send newsletters and they have kind of the little offering envelopes that they send to the newsletter recipients. And they get a lot of money from this small gift that you would expect on a church offering, right? So they've done wildly successful and their budget was somewhere around $500,000, which is really great for um, this food pantry. When we went in to do the audit, we realized that none of the value of food has or or um, donated time. The entire place is ran out of volunteers. I've never seen anything like this. Um, they served like an entire county. They had one paid employee. All of their intake workers were volunteers. All their warehouse people were volunteers. All their food drivers were volunteers. Um, all of their food, with the exception of some fresh meat and dairy, were were all in kind. When you added up all of the donated stuff and services, they were $2.5 million organization. So why is that important? Um, Because if we had to pay for those things that are obviously in this case, you can't have a food pantry without food. If we had to pay for these things, how, if we never tracked it, we never recorded it, how would we then be able to articulate to a, a foundation, for example, if they wanted to know how large is your organization? We don't have a real representation of that. And um, some foundations want to know that they're contributing to a solid, trustworthy organization, but they don't want to be the predominant funder. And they certainly don't want to invest in the sinking ship. So by saying we're actually two and a half million dollars and your gift of 100,000 is very welcome, but it's still reasonable given the size that we are. That looks much different than we're asking you to give a hundred thousand and five hundred thousand. Much different picture we're painting. So that in a very um that's a very simple um and I think very real explanation for and, and kind of an illustration for how big of an impact recognizing in kind and just another moment on how we valued that. So we basically had to come up with and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated because they have a whole warehousing system with this donated food and that's much more complex than most of us but we had to come up with a methodology for how we value it so we essentially went through and said okay there's generally let's say 10 different categories of food right canned food box non-perishables et cetera, et cetera. We, we we came up with a couple different categories and then what we did we we wanted to take a very conservative approach because there's a spectrum of grocery expenses, right? I mean, if you go to kind of a discount food store, you know, private label versus name brand, right, obviously. So we wanted to be very conservative on the pricing, so we chose a price point that was more in line with that discount food store for each one of those categories. So anytime a box of, you know, know, convenient meals came in, we're going to value that at $1.50 because that what it would cost if we purchased it at the discount food store. And we actually had to track all the volume of things that came in, but I'll tell you it was remarkable to really paint the picture of how big this organization was, which if you went there and you saw it, you'd think there's no way these people would survive on 500 houses. a $500,000 a year operation. Then when you add the numbers, you're like, yeah, this is more like a $2.5 or $3 million organization.
0: That's important. It's really important to, to be able to quantify that. Um, we're winding down this This is a really helpful interview. Thank you so much.
1: You bet. Um,
0: There's um, two questions on special gifts. Mm-hmm. So you got your budget, you're doing along, everything looks really fine, and somebody messes it up, somebody mm-hmm. dies, and they leave you a bequest. Mm-hmm. And then you put that in, and that greatly skews your income because mm-hmm. this goes in the income. So so we might have physically moved it over to a, an investment or, or a savings account, but it's still in our income. Where do you account for it so it doesn't mess up your numbers?
1: Yeah, that's where it gets into some of my clients. We have the generally accepted accounting principles because that's the right way to do the accounting. And then we have our operational statement of revenue and expenses. Like how do we budget? So some of those line items, when we look at it from an operational budget with operational revenues and expenses, we want to match those up to make sure that we're in line with what we expected. So you could set it up that way as well, but the truth is once you get some of these bequests, especially because you can't really budget for them, you can't really plan for them. Really, it's either a footnote, if you don't want to mess with kind of your reporting structure, it's kind of a footnote or an explanation each month until the next year. um, Or if you get a lot of these restricted grants that you weren't expecting or just weird pass through or anything like that, depending on your organization, Um, Churches is a big example of that. They get a lot of pass-through kind of membership um, kind of accounting they do for some of their clubs and things like that. You might want to have a separate kind of um, income statement or profit and loss statement or revenues and expenses that exclude some of those line items so that it really gives you a clear picture of are you operating in line with what the board had said minus all these extraordinary things.
0: Yeah. There's, there's special events both ways. And right now we're mm-hmm. living extraordinary times. So we we'll have to be very, very creative, but stay within the bounds of proper, uh, proper accounting. Um, mm-hmm. so there's, um, we get money for a program and there's, there's cash flow analysis. Where did the money go? That's the break lights, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right? There's, that's what we call in business a burn rate. You yep. spending money, but you're not making money. So you're burning your cash. And then, once your profit comes up, you're in, you're in profit. So there's the burn negative. So I don't know what you call it in a non-profit, but we we get this money. So it's important to do the headlights, a cash flow projection. How mm-hmm. long do we go before this money runs out?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So is what's how's that different from a budget?
1: Well, a budget is. Um, Oftentimes created before all of the now knowns are realized. I, frankly, we do a budget out of necessity and board expectations, but most of my clients internally, um, meaning the CEO and I, we go over projections um, because that's exactly it. We want to make sure that if things, and this, I've been on the phone, I'm kind of losing my voice, um, been on the phone quite a bit over the last two weeks to talk about in light of everything going on, those projections and how is that going to impact um, the rest of the year and what kind of additional proactive appeals can we put out into the community to help us weather that storm. Um, I do the same thing. I run cash flow projections. Um, it's amazing how many uh, organizations don't know their cash needs on a monthly basis. Um, so they need to understand that at a minimum, we need to bring in, for example, $50,000 to cover expenses. And if we don't, then we have to understand our cash is gonna continue to fall until we do. And then at what point do we need to do something differently? So, you know, I tell my clients all the time, revenues and expenses are important, of course, but at the end of the day, cash is king. If we don't have cash, it doesn't matter what our revenues and expenses show. And so if you're not keeping track of that, that needs to be number one, in my opinion, um, because it all relates to cash, revenues and expenses, and it, it all works together. But a lot of times we dismiss cash and we just look at the budget. Budget doesn't take into account cash.
0: No. So we got we're doing fine. One minute, where's the money? Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So that that's so crucial. And that's the to me, that's the function of the treasurer to highlight those and report it to the board. And then mm-hmm. so let's let's talk about um, how to hire a person like you. Now I'm ready to ask you to move to Virginia and work. So <laughs> how, how do we qualify somebody? We just have a couple of minutes here. Um, how do we how do we qualify somebody? You know, at some point, we're going to need to hire somebody part-time or full-time. But In the meantime, you provide a whole lot of services, and Mm -hmm. we don't have to pay big salaries or benefits or have an office or anything. But Mm -hmm. at some point, it's going to be important to bring somebody in. How do you know when that point is, and how do you you find somebody like you? I mean, we're going to send people to your website, and certainly they can decide if you're competent or not by this conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you're hiring somebody, what are some of the parameters to look at?
1: So generally ballpark, I would say for an organization with the right outsourced contractor, if you didn't want to break, let me think about this, generally around up to $100,000 a year budget, you might be able to do it as executive director, do some of the bookkeeping you were talking about. Then it gets more like, I just don't have time. I need to hire someone to help me. Um, Then you could generally, people will hire a part-time or a contracted person. Again, if they're really good, probably somewhere up to, um, I mean, many of our clients we work with completely, uh, we do all their accounting, generally up to about two to three, two, two million, let's say two million. Again, it varies depending on their complexity and their volume of work. Generally around somewhere between two to three million, you might want to have like a, at least a bookkeeper, boots on the ground, somebody to triage a lot of the questions and that kind of thing. Generally somewhere between like two to three million. Beyond like three, four, five million a year, depending again on your complexity, if you have a lot of government contracts, you get audits, then you probably want to consider having someone in-house. Um, I also I didn't talk too much about it. I know we're running out of time, but one of my main focuses is recruiting, of course, my own accountants, and then I train them on the specific nuance to nonprofit accounting. They come from all different backgrounds, they generally don't come from the nonprofit side because Those are just kind of unicorns. I mean, there's just not a lot of nonprofit specific accountants out there. I think people get afraid of it and shy away from it. But I think what's really important and a good indication is just to try to do some working interviews and ask them some specific questions.
0: Well, Tanya, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna give a quick sponsor moment here then ask you to do a quick tip as we wrap up. Very useful, very helpful uh, interview. Thank you for your time today. And I wanna remind people then go to the charity CFO you go to the nonprofitexchange.org to find all of these interviews and there'll be a transcript of this, plus a link to, to Tanya's website. And there's a lot of information in the blog. There's, there's a lot of inf- information there. Our sponsor today is WordSprint. WordSprint helps us stay in contact with our tribe. If it's your donors, your board, your board members, your supporters, you want to stay in touch with them and donors will remain donors. If you tell them what you're doing, it's the right message to the right person in the right frequency. So word sprint, right rhythm of of the communications Wordsprint.com. bill Gelmer and his team will help you out. So when you come to the nonprofitexchange.org, look at the join button at the top of that page. We have an exclusive community and it's hard to work out there by yourself. So it's peer to peer networking. It's peer to peer nurture. And it's us in the trenches supporting each other. So consider you're going to do it for a trial for a dollar. Then it's just a little over a dollar a day. So the nonprofitexchange.org takes you to the site and there's a blue button and check us out because you could be a member and it's so easy. Tanya, what's a challenge or a closing thought you'd like to leave people with?
1: I think maybe because we talked about a lot of things and if you're not getting this out of your accountant, um, then maybe share some of the, you know, show notes, uh, have them certainly watch the video and know that just because they're not sure how to do it again, going back to the system, um, capacity, uh, certainly reach out to some more resources. This is my website, contact me, and we can certainly help you get some of that information. So we talked about cash flow projections. We talked about financial reports. We talked about tracking different things. Um, and if if your accountant's telling you that, that that can't be done with your system or it can't be done with your operations then um you know let's just get some more resources for you because we do it all the time for our clients and um and it's just a matter of kind of educating uh, folks on how to do it
0: Tanya anderson the profit non-profit the non-profit cfo thank you for a great interview
1: appreciate it thank you